Maybe you had an opportunity to watch the Oakland Raiders play the New Orleans Saints. Um, It was the first game of their regular season. And in this game, uh, sports commentators, in reflecting on the game, basically said that the Raiders were their own worst enemy. Now, that's not something you really hope somebody's going to say about you, right, after a game. They did win the game, but, but still the thought was that they were their own worst enemy. Why? Because... They were leading the NFL, as of the end of that first game, in penalties. They had 14 penalties and had given up 141 yards. And so the guys reflecting on the game said, <laughs> they are they're their own worst enemies. These weren't strategic uh, penalties, but instead they were dumb penalties. It showed a lack of discipline. And, and I wonder, have you ever felt like you were your own worst enemy? I know I have. I've said things that, oh, if I could go back, I wouldn't have said it like that. I've done things. If I could turn the clock back, I wouldn't have done that. And and I look back and I go, I'm my own worst enemy. And and I'm sure you felt that way as well. Have you ever been a part of a team or a group or an organization where where that was the case too, where where there was a group of people uh, committed to performing or to achieving a certain task, and yet it seemed like as an organization or as a team, you were your own worst enemy. It seemed like there was a lack of commitment to the goal or there was a lack of discipline or perhaps there was just a, a, lot, of, a lot of division or disunity and trouble in, in the midst of a group. You've probably been a part of something like that and being a part of something dysfunctional like that always just sort of leaves you frustrated. You're not, you're not making forward movement. In fact... As we continue our journey through Nehemiah, we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 5, and we're going to discover that though there was a great threat outside of Jerusalem, that God's people faced a great threat beyond the walls of Jerusalem, in reality, perhaps the greater threat indeed lied with our, the greater threat was within the walls of Jerusalem. That is to say, the greater threat was from within Now, at this point in Israel's history, remember that Judah, the southern kingdom, had rebelled against God over and over and over again. And God finally said, I'm going to bring judgment. And God brought a judgment upon the people of of Israel. And and the nation of Babylon came and they wiped Jerusalem out and, and they took the people captive into Babylon, leaving only a small number of people remaining in Judah. And they... Uh, lived in captivity, well, eventually the Persian Empire would come and conquer the Babylonian Empire. And the Persians permitted the people of God to return to their nation. And so Nehemiah was a leader in this effort. Basically, Nehemiah had been a leader in the Persian government. He was a cupbearer to the king, which was a position of authority, which was a position of of, uh, influence. And he asked the king for the the opportunity to go to Jerusalem and help Jerusalem rebuild the walls. You'll remember that the walls of a city were critical for that city's well-being. The walls of the city um, allowed the city to defend itself against all sorts of attacks. And also the walls of a city allowed business to flourish. It allowed the morale of the people of God to be strong. But when the walls were devastated... It would be like walking outside after a tornado and you just see devastation everywhere. That's what what they were living in. And so when the walls were destroyed in a mess, 
It was deflating to the people of God. So for the people of God to flourish, the walls had to be rebuilt. And in the midst of this rebuilding, there was a lot of opposition. Last week, we talked about the fact that from every direction, the people that surrounded uh, God's people, Judah, were opposed to them, and they were fighting against them. But today, we're going to see, indeed, that there was a great threat, not just from the outside, but there was a great threat, truly, from the inside. Let's look at Nehemiah chapter 5. Now, there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers, For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our vineyards and our fields. In this chapter, we're going to see that Nehemiah acts swiftly to confront the challenges among the people of God, the challenges within the people of God. In verse 1, we see that there was a great outcry. Well, what's happening? There's a whole group of people among the Jews who are struggling with poverty. They are not able to to pay their bills. And so they are helping rebuild the wall, but in the midst of of helping rebuild the wall around this this city, they can't put food on the table for their family. And so the men and their wives begin to say, this isn't working. Now, why, why why does it say here that the wives? Because the wives were having a lot of weight put on them. As their husbands were working to rebuild the wall, they're trying to to feed the family. The husband's unavailable. And so the, the men and their wives, they're crying out. They're not crying out against the Samaritans or the Ammonites or the people surrounding Judah. No, they're crying out about the treatment that they faced with fellow Jews, with their own people. They're crying out against their own people and their complaints. What what were their complaints? Well, one of the complaints is this. We are many. We got big families. We got a lot of of sons and daughters, and we just don't have food to feed them. We don't have it. What else? Uh, Another complaint was that they were mortgaging their fields. Some people were, were mortgaging their fields so that they were mortgaging their fields so that they would have food to eat. And still we see that another complaint was that they were having to borrow money. They were having to borrow money for uh, the, the payment of taxes. So they were mortgaging their fields so that, so that the taxes could be paid. This is, this is uh, the complaints. So basically you have a whole segment of the people among the Jews who are saying, I can't. I can't make it. I, I'm struggling. And they say this, we are at a place where we're giving up our own children to be slaves. Well, in the Old Testament, there was a a part of the law that permitted a Jew to become a debt slave. And that is to say, they could 
uh, worked for a fellow Jew until their debts were paid off. Now, in the year of Jubilee, the seventh year, they would be released automatically, but, but they would have to work so that their debts could be paid off. And basically, the people are saying here, look, we're out of money. We've mortgaged our fields. We've got nothing left. We're allowing our own kids to, to go into to slavery. And, and so they are crying out. They're crying out. So what you see in the family of God is like a cancer growing in the, middle, in the midst of God's people. There's this cancer, and it's growing, and it's seeking to destroy the people of God. Again, not an attack from the outside, but trouble from within. This, this selfishness. You've got a whole group of, of Jewish people who are wealthy, and there's a whole group that are struggling, and the ones who are wealthy are loaning money, they're, they're taking pledges, they're, they're, they're like a cruel pawnbroker in, in many ways. They're looking for ways, looking for ways to make money, and they're making money off the folks who are struggling to put food on the table, and they're all fellow members of the family of God. It's a, it's a terrible situation. It's a, it's a horrible situation. And so... Nehemiah says in verse 6, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers so that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you were doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations and our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses. And the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment. And I said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assemblies said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. So in verse 6, we see that Nehemiah was very angry about what was happening here. The fact that fellow Jews were being enslaved was, was a great frustration to him. When he saw what was happening and he understood what was happening to these folks who were in need, he doesn't react rashly. He doesn't begin to yell and scream and holler. And what does he do? He takes counsel with himself. He gets away and he thinks through what's happening and he tries to come up with a good solution. I'm sure it would be fair to say that he spent some time seeking the Lord. And so Nehemiah takes counsel with himself and he brought charges against the nobles and the officials. That is, those who were wealthy and who were taking advantage of of fellow Jews. Now, this idea of bringing charges, it's a legal idea. So obviously he goes to These nobles, these leaders among the people, and and he says to them, hey, what you're doing is not okay. And and I'm going to move forward. I'm going to bring charges against you. Now, I want you to understand, Nehemiah has a goal of seeing the walls rebuilt around Jerusalem. 
And he has a goal that the people of, of God are strengthened. But now suddenly he's at odds with the key leaders among the people. Imagine being in Nehemiah's shoes for a moment. Here you are trying to lead. You're trying to see this wall built, the mission furthered and accomplished. And yet, you've got to come against the people who are leaders. That's a pretty rough place to be. And so, Nehemiah says you're exacting interest. And we know from the Old Testament law that a Jew couldn't charge a fellow Jew interest. It was against the law. So so there was some charging of interest among the people of God. This was not okay. It's also true that while a fellow Jew could become a debt slave in one sense, that is to say that they could become a slave until their debts were paid off, in reality, the Old Testament made it clear that no Jew was ever to be truly enslaved by another Jew, but rather just to, to be treated as a hired hand or as an employee. And so here, Jews were being put into slavery by fellow Jews. And so, Nehemiah points to the heart of the problem. You're taking advantage of your fellow brothers and sisters. You're taking advantage of them. So what does Nehemiah do? He calls a great assembly. This is important because this was a public sin. This wasn't a sin that happened between one or two people and and wasn't known. No, this was a public sin. There was a great outcry among the people. So Nehemiah responds to it in a public manner. He goes to them and he says to them, we're going to deal with this. He calls an assembly of all of the people and he begins to address the issues at hand. And he says to the people, do you recognize that our fellow countrymen, our fellow brothers and sisters have been sold among the nations and we've done everything we can to buy them back, to redeem them, to bring them back into the the people of God. And now, amongst the very people of God, we're selling each other as slaves? Really? Nehemiah says, this is crazy. How could we do this? How could this be okay? How could it be right? And so Nehemiah points to the great selfishness that was present among God's people. The great selfishness that was working itself out in the midst of those who were called of God. This is, this is huge. It's a cancer. It's a cancer that absolutely must be dealt with. And so, what, were the res- what was the response of the nobles and the officials, those who were wealthy? They were silent. They, they just didn't say a word. And he said to the people, shouldn't you walk in the fear of God? What was Nehemiah saying? He was saying this, don't you understand that in the way that you live, It should be clear that you fear God. So if you belong to God, if you are his people, then the way that you live ought to reveal that. So you're claiming to fear God, to be the people of God, and then you're living like you're not. You're living as if you're one of those people outside the walls of Jerusalem buying and selling Jewish slaves. And so he confronts them plainly and clearly, and he says what you're doing is not good. I want you to see the moral clarity that Nehemiah brings to the picture here. Nehemiah could have danced around it and said, well, maybe we should try something different. But what does Nehemiah do? He says, this is wrong. As a leader, you didn't have to wonder where Nehemiah was. He made it clear. I want you to recognize the courage this took on Nehemiah's part. 
What could have happened to him? What if all of these leaders had rebelled against him? What if all of these leaders had had turned against him instead of being willing to hear him? But moral clarity is demanded if a people if a people are going to be committed to the mission that God has given. And Nehemiah demonstrates and exercises a clear moral clarity that must occur if the people of God are going to be healthy and strong in him. And so, he says, what you're doing is causing the nations around us to, to look at us and to go, what a joke. These people claim to be the people of God and they're selling their very own? Now, if you'll remember, back to the Abrahamic covenant, when God called Abraham, he said, you're going to be a blessing to the nations. And, and later in Isaiah, God would say in Isaiah 42, 6, that his people were meant to be a light to the nations. But how could his people be a light to the nations and bring him glory when they were buying and selling each other? Nehemiah says, you're making a joke of God. You're making a joke of God's glory among the nations. Now, in verse 10, Nehemiah does something that's very important as a leader. He owns his part of the problem. Now, it's clear the way that Nehemiah responded to this whole situation in anger, that he wasn't taking slaves among fellow Jews, and it's also clear that that he wasn't taking interest. But what becomes clear in verse 10 is he was loaning money to people, fellow Jews. Nehemiah was loaning them money. And so, in verse 10, he, he owns that and says, hey, me and my family and those who are with me, we... We've been lending money too, and we're going to stop. Why? Because the situation at hand did not call for lending of money. It called for extreme generosity. Why? Because the people of God were in in an incredible bind. It was a very hard time in the nation, and it wasn't a time to lend. It was a time to give. And and Nehemiah says, I've been part of the problem. I've lent. I've not been as generous as as God would have had me be, and he owns that as, as a leader. It's very important we see that, that, uh, that understanding that Nehemiah was willing to admit his own sin and willing to admit areas where he was a part of the, the problem here. And so what does he say in verse 12? He says, we ought to require nothing from those who owe us money. Let's erase the debt. It's gone. And if we have their pastures, their fields, etc., we're going to return them. We're going to give them back. And Nehemiah brought the priests in, and he said to the people of God, you're saying that you're going to do this. I want you to take an oath here before God that you're going to follow through and obey what you're saying, that you're going to release those, those debts, that you're going to, to return what you've taken from your brothers. And so the, the priests administer this oath. The, the people of God take this covenant before the Lord together. And then what does Nehemiah do, he does sort of an object lesson. At this time, a lot of the times in their garment or their cloak, their outer garment, they would put some kind of belongings in sort of a pocket and fold it up. And so he releases that pocket and whatever was in his garment comes out. And he says to the people, may God do this to you if you do not keep your oath. May God shake you out and empty you. In other words, you better mean what you say. You better be ready to follow through. What happened? Well, the people said, amen. What does that mean? May it be. They agreed with Nehemiah. The, 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 the nobles and the officials said, we're releasing the people who are struggling. Their debts are gone. And then everyone together praised God, and they did as they had promised. So this is very significant. 
what does it teach us? It teaches us how to deal with issues in a godly manner uh, amongst the people of God. Sometimes when there are trouble in the midst of the people of God, one approach is to be sort of like an ostrich, just to put your head in the sand. Try to ignore it. Maybe if I ignore it long enough, it'll just disappear. Some of you husbands might be getting an elbow because your wife may say that's the way you deal with problems, right? Sometimes, uh, I don't know. Sometimes we are like a cat. We're just sort of apathetic. We don't really care. Oh, that's going on. That doesn't concern me. It's not really my issue. I, I got nothing to do with it. At other times, we're like a crow. And we sit out on the wire telling everybody we can. We got we to gotta talk about it. Got to 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 make people know, hey, did you hear about this? Did you hear about that? These are the ways that sometimes we deal with problems. But they are ungodly ways to deal with problems. They are the wrong way to deal with problems. What do we see with Nehemiah? He comes at a problem with moral clarity. He addresses it head on. He goes directly to the people. It was a public issue. He addressed it publicly. These are the ways that the people of God handle problems within the family of God. Incidentally, I want us to understand that anytime you get people together, because all of us are sinners, anytime you get people together, there's going to be trouble. That's a fact. There's always trouble. Everywhere there's a beating heart, there's trouble. Everywhere. And sometimes people think that the church is supposed to be some magical oasis where there's never problems. Well, I can't believe that's happening. No, anywhere there's people, there are problems. Now, you're thinking forward, and it's a good thing to think forward because one day in heaven, those sinful hearts are going to be completely transformed. And I'm not going to look back and say, oh, I'm my own worst enemy in heaven and neither are you. Because in heaven, we won't have this sin battle that we face. But there are going to be problems anytime you have people. The question is, do we handle the problems in a way that honors God? Do we handle the problems in an appropriate manner? Let's look at verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be the governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Remember all that I have done for this people. So what do we see in Nehemiah? He says, as governor, I could have demanded a tax from the people, but my whole time of serving as governor, I didn't. I didn't require that. I I didn't ask that. Other governors who came before me, they and their crew lorded it over the people, but Nehemiah says, I didn't. I tried to care for the people. I tried not to be an additional burden to the people. Now, clearly, Nehemiah came from from a wealthy family, had a very high position in the Persian government. 
but he did not take advantage of this opportunity that he had a perfectly legal right to. Instead, he is giving and giving and giving because he wanted to benefit the people. But, but not only that, notice that he says, I did it because of fear of God. Now, this is huge. This is huge because what is Nehemiah saying? He's saying, I really fear God, and it changes the way that I live. If you claim to be a believer, if you claim to know Jesus, then it ought to change the way you live. It ought to change your conversation. There ought to be words that you wouldn't say. There ought to be jokes that you wouldn't tell. There ought to be movies that there's not a chance you would watch. There ought to be business deals that you wouldn't even consider. And the list could go on and on and on. Why? Because if we fear God, it's meant to be worked out in the day-to-day of life. It's meant to be worked out where the rubber meets the road. So does your conversation, do your attitudes, do your actions, do they reveal that you fear God? For Nehemiah, the answer was yes. I've got a right to get more money, but I'm not going to take it because I fear him. Because I want to be a good servant of God. I want to be faithful. He also says we acquired no land. What does he mean by that? For people who hadn't paid their taxes, they could have seized their land. There was none of that under Nehemiah. In verse 19, we see Nehemiah's heart. He cries out to God and he says, remember me, God. And this gives us a hint of what's happening in Nehemiah's heart. As a leader, it's a challenge to lead. And he's struggling. He's struggling. He feels the pressure of leading well. And so he he cries out to God and says, remember me, God. In other words, strengthen me and and use what what I'm doing. Take care of your people. It's this idea. All throughout Nehemiah, we see him going to God in prayer, calling out to God. So in reflecting on this chapter, it is clear. It is clear that God's people are called to unity, that the mission might advance. God's people are called to unity, that the mission might advance. Well, what is the mission? The mission is that the gospel might be made known all around the world. That we, as, as a people of God, might tell people about Jesus here in Uvalde, the surrounding areas, and ultimately that we might strive to make his no, name known all over the globe. That's our mission. It wasn't to build a wall. Our mission is to, to tell people about Jesus. So, as we think through what it means to tell people about Jesus, to further our mission, let's consider three essentials for unity within our church family. Three essentials for unity within our church family. First, avoid selfishness and oppression. Avoid selfishness and oppression. Do you ever look for ways to get ahead by harming others or by taking advantage of others? Maybe you say to yourself, well, if they're dumb enough to do this, oh well. Do you um, look for what you want and look for ways to get it, no matter what that looks like? If you have to do a little manipulation behind the scene, you're good with that. As long as you get what you want, as long as what you're aiming for, well, that's accomplished. Do you take advantage of others? Um, And again, we're thinking particularly within the family of God. Of course, these have wider application beyond the family of God. But it's not okay. It's not okay for us to say that we fear God, that we belong to God, and then to live however we want to live. That's not okay. And this kind of selfishness is never okay. 
especially, particularly within the family of God, within the people of God. One writer said this, to consider persons and events and situations only in the light of their effect upon myself is to live on the doorstep of hell. To consider events only in light of their impact on me, in essence, is to live right there next to hell. Right there, like the devil himself. Listen to Paul's words to the Philippians in chapter 2, beginning of verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So is that you? Do you strive to say, you know what? I'm going to put the needs of others ahead of myself. I'm going to strive to walk in humility. I'm going to strive to pour my life out for the good of others. Well, that's the calling that God has for us as as we're a part of, of his family. You see, selfishness among the family of God is cancer. It's cancer. It destroys. It ruins So we must avoid selfishness and oppression. Second, confront issues in a godly manner. We must confront issues in a manner that's godly and honoring. Nehemiah didn't play games. He didn't try to manipulate. He confronted the guilty, called an assembly, all those kinds of things. He could have tried to dodge this. It took moral courage, but he didn't. He had the conviction to do what had to be done, to do what was right, no matter the cost. That's what Nehemiah did. He, he brought that kind of moral conviction and clarity to the picture. And so within our own church family, we got to deal with issues right away. If there are issues that come up, we can't ignore those. We can't allow divisiveness with, within our church family. Scripture has a lot to say about those who try to cause divisiveness. We can't allow open immorality or sin among members. If you're a member of First Baptist Church Uvalde and you are living in open, flagrant sin, purposeful, rebellious sin, the scriptures tell us that as a church we have a responsibility to try to bring you to repentance, not to ignore that. It can't be ignored, not if we're faithful as the people of God. Incidentally, some of you say, well, I'm, I'm not a member of the church. I don't really think a person needs to be a member of the church I think that's sort of a man-made thing. That's something they just sort of invented, came up with, sort of furthered their own cause. The problem with that outlook, the problem with that outlook is that it's contrary to the clear teachings of Scripture. Now, you may not find the word church member in the Scriptures. You won't. But you'll find the concept all over the New Testament. There's no way to obey Matthew chapter 15, pardon me, chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, without something like church membership. So I want to say to those of you who are here and who say, you know what, I don't really need to be a member. It doesn't really matter. I want to say to you, I want to plead with you to look at what the scriptures say. It does matter. When we're a part of the family of God, there's a certain accountability that comes that we need. That, and there's a certain way that, that we challenge and support one another. So there's no way to be faithful to this book and to stay outside of membership in a local church. You can't do it. You just can't do it. So, so I want to encourage you to think through that, to look at Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, or 1 Corinthians 5, for example, and tell me how you obeyed those passages without something akin to membership. So as a church family, we can't allow open, rebellious sin. We also can't allow false doctrine. False doctrine 
can grow up in the midst of a church and, and destroy the witness of the church and destroy the furtherance of the gospel. And we see this all throughout uh, the New Testament. Jesus teaches about the dangers of false teachers and false doctrine. Paul's letters do. And some of you sometimes say, well, that pastor is way too, he gets so focused on the word of God and, and he'll say, well, it's got to be faithful to the word. And thus he kind of says this person we shouldn't follow or that person we should be careful about. And some of you say, oh, he's way too hard. Brothers and sisters, please hear me. False doctrine and false teaching fills churches today. And the moment we allow just a little compromise, just a little compromise, it's easier to allow compromise. Believe me, I don't like being the guy that says, hey, we need to be careful. I don't like being the guy that always says, hey, let's make sure this lines up with the word. But brothers and sisters, if I'm faithful as a pastor, if I'm faithful as your shepherd, I must do that. It's a cancer. It destroys. And if you want verses, I got a whole packet of verses in the New Testament, from the New Testament that address just this issue. And so these things must be dealt with in the family of God. They must be. So what are the wrong ways to handle problems in the church? Well, it's to gossip. It's to hold on to bitterness. It's to make false assumptions about people. No, instead, we do what Matthew 18 says, and we go directly to the people of God. We go directly to the person that we're struggling with, and we, we, we talk to them, and, and we go to them one-on-one, and perhaps we bring another person with us. And then ultimately, if an issue isn't resolved, it may go before the entire church to call a person to repentance. And that's what happened here in Nehemiah. The whole assembly was gathered together, and the folks who were sinning were called to repentance. So within the family of God, we cannot allow disunity to grow. We must humbly seek to work through challenges with a willingness to admit where we need to change. And like Nehemiah, as a leader, he was willing to say, hey, I'm guilty too, and every one of us has to have that same spirit of humility. Now, a good running back out on the field is going to be dodging. He's going to be dodging and, and moving fast and quick and avoiding Every tackle that he can avoid, and that's a great way to play football if you're a running back, but it's a really crummy way to deal with problems in the life of the church. You cannot dodge problems. They must be dealt with. Nehemiah teaches us that. He makes it clear. So we've seen that issues must be confronted in a godly manner. Third, demonstrate radical generosity and selflessness. Demonstrate radical generosity and selflessness. Be like Jesus. He's the perfect example of selflessness. What did he do? He left the majesty of heaven. He came to this earth and he lived a life where he would suffer and ultimately where he would face death. And why did he die? He died because of our sin. He died because we're guilty. And he made a way for those of us who are sinful to be in a relationship with a God who's holy. Why? Because God's only response to sin is is judgment. The, the cost for sin is death. That, the scriptures are clear. And so what Jesus did is he took that death upon himself so that we don't have to die and live eternally separated from God. No, we can know God and be in relationship with God. And so today if you're here and there's never been a turning point in your life where you've said to Jesus, I know that I've sinned. I know I've gone my own way. I believe you came from heaven and lived a perfect life, died on the cross, was buried and raised from the dead. I want to follow you. If you've never done that, if that turning point has never happened in your life, maybe you came to the front years ago 
and you uttered some words, but they've never been life-changing. Maybe you went through some sort of religious experience when you were younger, some sort of a ritual perhaps. I'm saying to you, those things do not make you right with a God who's holy. Maybe you thought, well, hey, I'm a pretty good person, and God's going to He's going to look at me and say, hey, you're a good old boy. Come in, high five, let's go. It's not like that. Please understand, it is not like that. The Son of God suffered and died on a cross because God is holy and because God cannot overlook my sin nor yours. And your sin will be dealt with. It will be dealt with in eternal separation from God, a horrible place called hell where it will be dealt with as you kneel at the foot of the cross. And so this morning, if you do not know him, if that, there's never been that turning point in your life, I plead with you today, would you know him? Jesus demonstrates perfectly a life of radical generosity and selflessness, the kind that we're called to as the family of God. In Philippians 1.27, Paul said this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm, one in spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What's Paul say to the church of Philippi? He says, my goal is that you're standing side by side for the furtherance of the gospel. That's what we've got to do, brothers and sisters. We've got to stand side by side, unified, committed to one another, laying down our own rights for the good of each other, dealing with problems as they come in a godly manner and seeing that the wall gets built, seeing that the gospel gets furthered. So let's sacrifice and let's give and let's pour our lives that the body might be unified and that the mission might be furthered. Now we are observing a time where where our church participates in Operation Christmas Child. Most of you know what this is, but but little shoe boxes are packed and you put toys and, and other kinds of helpful items in these boxes. And they're sent to other countries, places where there's great poverty, where, where children, many of them don't get presents or Christmas presents. And they are taken all across the world, but they're not just given to kids. They're given to kids, and the kiddos are told about Jesus. And it's a huge operation. Since its founding in 1993, there have been over 124 million shoeboxes delivered. And this year alone, there will be well over 10 million uh, Uh, sent across the world. And little kiddos will be loved in Jesus' name and will be told about how they can have a relationship with God. That's just what we're supposed to be doing. But how does that happen? Well, it happens as churches all over the nation work together and each person gives some, makes a little sacrifice, puts together some boxes and those boxes are collected by teams of volunteers, and, and eventually they're shipped all across the world. And it's a picture, it's a demonstration of what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to all give, we're supposed to all sacrifice, we're supposed to put the needs of others ahead of ourselves. And what's the ultimate goal? That people will be loved in the name of Christ, and that the gospel will be proclaimed, that people might know how they can have a relationship with Jesus. Church, I'm pleading with you, let's be that. Let's be that. Let's team up. Let's get side by side. Let's, let's see that the gospel is furthered. As we face some, some challenges in, in our own church family, I mentioned them last week, but I'll, I'll mention them again. We're projected to finish 
the 2016 budget about $200,000 below what, what we had anticipated receiving. That's a pretty big difference. And so 2017 budget is going to look different. It has to. You, you know you can't spend more than you take in. And so you know what that's going to mean? That's going to mean that some of us in our area of programming might have a cut or something. But this is what I'm saying to you, brothers and sisters. We face this challenge within But let's say no matter what, we're going to be a family and we're going to be unified, that we are not going to allow a challenge like this to tear us apart, but instead to allow this challenge to make us stronger in Christ and more committed to the furtherance of the gospel. So so, so let's be committed to that. As we we had this interim time without a worship uh, uh, leader, let's be committed to, 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 to unity. And anytime you begin to talk about music or musical styles, woo, you can heat up a church in a hurry, can't you? Because one person likes this and one person likes that and this person likes this. But I'm saying to us, brothers and sisters, it's really not about what I like, is it? The question is, what will be good for the family and how can the mission go further? And that's the key. So none of us, as we, as we take this time of, of transition and we're, we're looking ahead, none of us needs to be demanding our own way. And this means the pastor too. It means all of us needs to, needs to be asking, how can we further the, the, the uh, mission? How can we move forward? So how can our church family be used powerfully to see the gospel spread? Well, it's a commitment to the good of the family, not just to my own good. It's a commitment to work through trouble, difficult issues in a godly manner. And it's a commitment to serve and to give sacrificially for the good of others. So let's ask God to keep us unified in the task that he's called us to. Let's ask him to help us put others ahead of ourselves. That doesn't happen in our own strength. That's a work of the Spirit. Are you committed to unity for the furtherance of the gospel, that the walls might be built up, that God's glory might be made known here and all around the world? Brothers and sisters, I believe, I believe we are. I believe we're ready to see God move in great ways. Join me in prayer.